I want to say something about the Song of Solomon, okay? We're not gonna, we're not gonna turn there, we're not gonna delve into it, but I think it's important for us to get a good perspective about the Song of Solomon because there is a lot of discussion, a lot of debate and such over the centuries about that book, okay? And so with the Song of Solomon, there are those who say it is strictly allegorical. It's just an allegory of the Jews saw it, some of them, as God's relationship with Israel and the church saw it as God's relationship with, or Jesus's relationship with the church. And that makes sense because the Bible says, you know, that, that the, the people of Israel were God's wife. That was an example of the relationship that God had with his people. And when they sinned and committed idolatry, it was likened unto adultery and especially when you look at the prophet Hosea and how God tells him to marry the prostitute Gomer to show Israel the broken heart of God but God's redemptive love and God's commitment to an unfaithful wife being Israel and God always being there for her you know it's a beautiful and powerful picture of God's faithfulness to us and then when you look in the New Testament, we see that the church is called the bride of Christ. And the husband, you know, us guys, we're supposed to love our wives as Jesus Christ loves the church. And that's an incredible picture and all. So there's this mindset that, hey, the Song of Solomon is just an allegory, okay? There's problems with that, okay? Um, because when you start to allegorize the Song of Solomon, it gets really weird, all right? It gets really weird. And there were those like Spurgeon, he preached 59 sermons on the Song of Solomon, okay? There's another guy back in the 11th century, I think his name was like Beauregard of Chevreau, okay? I think it was his name. And he did 89 on just the first two chapters of the Song of Solomon, trying to break it down and make everything allegorical, okay? There are those on the other side of the spectrum that say this is strictly a romance poem, a romance song, okay? And when you look at it for what it is, that's what it is, all right? Solomon wrote over a thousand songs and poems. And one of the names for the Song of Solomon is the Song of Songs. It's the magnum opus of Solomon. And I think it's incredible that here's Solomon writing this because Solomon, unfortunately, to his, to his not demise, but to his uh, hurt, his harm, because of the multitude of women that he brought to himself as concubines and wives, he had a lot of experience within the realm of romance and sex and passion and all of that stuff. But when you look at the Song of Solomon, 
there's this very intimate, passionate, beautiful relationship that goes from courtship into the wedding, into the marriage and the development of that relationship. And we live in a society where people just think, hey, you know, be free with sex, be free with love and just do whatever you want. It's all good. But we see in the Song of Solomon, the beauty and the passion and the, the, the strength of a committed relationship between a man and a woman. Now, I'll say this, there are some parallels, okay? And again, those parallels are the way Jesus loves the church as his bride we can see that kind of love and that passion that Christ has for us in the Song of Solomon, okay? We don't want to take that analogy too far. Like I said, there's some really weird things. There's bad, even hymns and doctrine that came out of that kind of view where it's all allegory. Like, you ever heard of Jesus being called the Rose of Sharon? Or seen it in hymns? You know how he's the beautiful Rose of Sharon? Well, you know what, he's not. And the Rose of Sharon is something that was given to the bride in chapter two of the Song of Solomon. So in all of this allegorizing, you just get this weird stuff, okay? Um, but there's this picture of passion and romance and a developing intimacy in the Song of Solomon. And I think it's something that Christians and the church need to take to heart because when people look at our relationship with Jesus, what does it look like? Is it a love relationship? Is there passion? Is there intimacy with the Lord? Or is it just kind of dry? Are we more like roommates with Jesus than we are the bride and the groom? Jesus is our bridegroom. One day we will participate in the marriage feast of the Lamb. There is rejoicing, there's intimacy, there's beauty, there's passion. And I'm not talking about being emotional, okay, or emotionalism, but just we're children of the living God. We're the bride of Jesus Christ. We are chosen, we are beloved, we are his own. And that should excite us. When you see a couple in love, it gets people's attention, right? And, you know, I, you know, Jennifer and I, we just had our 30th wedding anniversary. And it's cool when you watch and you see, you know, you'll see young couples who are dating or whatever and they're holding hands still and they're all, you know, googly eyed and everything. But when you see a couple that's like in their 60s or 70s and they're holding hands, walking down the, you know, the mall or something like that. And it's not googly eyes or anything like that, but there's just this, you can see in their face, this deep deep love and appreciation and commitment that's been grounded. You know, you look at that and you go, wow. Oh, that's, that's the way I want to be, you know, that far down the road. 
And the world should be able to look at our lives and our relationship with Jesus and go, I want to experience love like that. I want to experience that kind of beauty and intimacy. But do they see that? I think they need to. And again, I'm not talking about emotionalism. It's just when you are connected with your spouse and you're in love with your spouse and you see this this back and forth in the Song of Solomon where there's there's praise of each other and the you know he's praising his his bride to be and she's praising him and they're they're elevating each other and they're bragging about each other and they're swooning over each other and as they're developing this relationship it just it's a beautiful thing and as we build our relationship with Christ it just grows into something beautiful you don't have to force the feelings now i'll tell you sometimes i i wish you know i'd have a little bit more feelings it's like you want to have those goosebump moments with jesus you know and when you've been married a long time you still get boost boost gumps what's a boost gump you get goosebumps those moments and stuff but it's more of a, a stronger, foundational, deeper thing that's there. But you still get the goosebumps. And it's that way with Christ, too. It's like, sometimes I just wish I had more goosebumps, you know. But um, once in a while, he gives me those. But it grows into something that's beyond the goosebumps. Something deep. And there's that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I think it's for good reason that God is likened unto the husband and Israel, the wife, and Jesus is the bridegroom and us as the bride. It's a deep, intimate commitment. And so much, and we're going to see this as we go into 1 Kings, there's a lot of a superficiality in the church, in its relationship with Jesus. A lot of Christians have a very shallow relationship with the Lord, sometimes of their own choosing and sometimes because they're not taught and discipled in how to go deeper into the Lord. And going into 1 Kings, we're going to go through chapter 5 through chapter 9 and branch out from there to some other things. We're looking at how Solomon built the temple. And there are parallels within our relationship with the Lord because just as Jesus is the bridegroom and we're the bride, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit of the living God. And as we see the temple being built, the physical temple, there's parallels for how God works in us the spiritual temple, okay? So in chapter 5 of 1 Kings, this is where Solomon is preparing the temple. He's been uh, coronated as king, okay? And uh, David has now died. And Solomon begins to get the timber and all of the, the wood together to build the temple, all right? 
And Hiram had a very close relationship with David. He was the king of Tyre. And so now he's saying, okay, Solomon, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I loved your father and I want to help you build the temple to the Lord. So whatever you need, I'm there for you. And so in chapter six, verse one, it says in the 480th year, after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house of King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, okay, 90 feet, 20 cubits wide, 30 feet wide, and 30 cubits high, 45 feet, okay? So it wasn't, by temple standards, very big. But there was no structure that compared as far as the glory and the beauty that was put into that structure. And then Solomon also built another structure that was adjacent to it for the storerooms and other rooms that were used in the temple worship. So from the time that Israel came out of Egypt and they had the tabernacle that God instructed them to build where God would meet with his people and that his people would rally around. Now we're 480 years out from that and they're building the temple, okay? So when the temple is built, they actually bring up the Ark of the Covenant from the city of David. And in Gibeon is where the tabernacle still is. You remember that Solomon was praying and he was offering up sacrifices and all after he became king. And it was at Gibeon where God met him and said, what do you want me to do for you? And Solomon said, I need understanding and knowledge and wisdom to care for your people and to lead them. And God said, you got it. That happened there. So they take the, they take the tabernacle and all of its stuff and they bring that to Jerusalem as well. And they're gonna put everything into the temple. Now, here's a little bit of information to give you some more perspective, all right? You remember that David said to the people concerning Solomon, you need to help my son because he's young and inexperienced, right? The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Solomon became king at the age of 15, all right? Now, normally when I'm thinking about this, it used to be I was thinking, okay, so here's this guy who's like late 20s, 30s, whatever, and you know he's just ready to tackle everything. When he became king, he was 15 years old. When they started construction, he was 19 years old. And the construction took seven years. And then Solomon started on his house, and that took another 13 years. So the building projects were going out 20 years from, from then. But he's just a teenager. But he's a teenager who is dedicated to the Lord. He's a young man who is sold out to God and looking to God for the wisdom and the power and the understanding to do the work of God. And so going down to verse 7, it says, When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry 
so that neither hammer nor axe or any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. So there's a place, oh, I can't remember the, the layout, but a good distance away from the Temple Mount is Solomon's Quarry. It's a giant cave where they pulled the limestone out and they were cutting and fashioning and shaping every stone to exact precision and then taking it up to the Temple Mount to be put specifically in its proper place in the structure, okay? And I think this is important for us because as God works in our lives as living stones, he's fashioning us. And Peter talks about how we're being put into our specific place in the body of Christ, okay, to fulfill our place. But this is happening at a distance away. And it says um, in verse eight, the entrance for the lowest story, and this is the outer building, was on the south side of the house and one went up by stairs to the middle story and from the middle story to the third. So there's a three-story building that is connected to the temple. He built the house and finished it and made the ceiling of the house of the beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure again against the whole house, five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. And then if you go down to verse 14, so Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls with the house on the, of the house on the inside with boards of cedar from the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling. He covered them on the inside with wood and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls and he built this within an inner sanctuary as the most holy place and then it goes on to talk about how within the wood he carved palm trees and gourds and all sorts of decorative things and then once that was done so you've got this this temple that's built in the very back of the temple is the Holy of Holies. It was a 20, cu or, yeah, 20 cubits, so it's a 30-foot cube. And within that structure of the temple, you've got the stone. That's all overlaid with cedar and cypress wood. And then all of that was overlaid with gold. Okay, So when you went into the, the temple, actually you wouldn't. Only the priests could go into the temple. Everybody else was on the outside. But the priest would go into the temple. You would not see a bit of stone. You would not see a bit of wood. All you would see is gold. And all this beautiful artwork etched into the wood now overlaid with gold. And the only light within the temple was the menorah. The seven-armed uh, candlestick and so you would go in and the light of the menorah would illuminate the interior of the temple and it would flash off of the gold can you imagine how beautiful that must have been in there and the glory and the splendor there's a parallel here for us that's important Adam Clark talks about this Spurgeon talks about this 
a parallel for us as believers in the building of the temple of the Lord, because we're part of the temple. We are individually temples of the Holy Spirit and corporately living stones being built into a temple for the Holy Ghost, okay, to bring him glory. So when the world looks at the body of Christ, the church, we are to be a beautiful structure bringing him glory and being that place where people can see the presence and have a connection with God, okay? We're his ambassadors, we're his priests. And for us as believers, we need to have the heart to be willing to do the unseen things, okay? So often, Christians want to have the limelight. It's human nature. We want to be known what we've done. You know, and, and I think about, as I was thinking about this, you know, it's like looking at my own motives. You know, even to the point of telling somebody I'm praying for them, okay? And I was thinking, wow, okay, God, why am I telling somebody I'm praying for them? Is it because I want to encourage them and let them know that I'm there for them? Or is it because I want them to think well of me? Mercenary prayer. Isn't that like sick? But it made me think about that. It's like, why am I, why am I telling this person this? Would it be better to keep my mouth shut and be on my knees for them rather than to try to get praise from somebody, you know, what's my motive? You know, Jesus talks about praying in the closet where the Pharisees, you know, they'd stand on the street corner and they'd be praying and all. And God says, Jesus says, you know, you've got your reward. You want to be seen? You've been seen. You want the praise of men? You got it. But you are not talking with me. You know, we want to connect in the secret places with the Lord. And I thought about how when the church that I was assistant pastor at, people would go to my pastor, Robert, and go, hey, the Lord's calling me to, to, to teach and be a part of teaching ministry. Or others would come and say, hey, you know what? God wants me to be a part of, of the worship. And Robert would go, okay, fantastic. Well, we have a huge need in the children's ministry. We need Sunday school teachers and we need people to help with the worship for the children. You know, we, the children automatically went at that church, went to children's church and they had their own worship team and worship time and all that stuff. And then they went to the Sunday school classes. And more often than not, the response was, well, no, God's, God's not calling me to that. It's like, well, you said God's calling you to this and here's where the need is within the body of Christ. But they wanted to be behind the pulpit. They wanted to be up on stage. And it was really crazy how you'd see people go, well, that's just not where I'm supposed to be. It's like, okay. But we have this tendency to want the limelight. Where in reality, when we're serving the Lord by praying for somebody, or giving that cup of cold water to somebody in need, or seeing somebody who is hurting and coming alongside of them. And I'm not talking just in the church building, not even to Christians, 
but going out to the world around us and the neighborhood around us and seeing broken and hurting people and being Christ's hand and love extended to them. Nobody will maybe see that, but the Lord sees that. When we pour into each other and we're building each other up in a one-on-one type of thing, maybe nobody else will see that, but we are actually building up the body of Christ. We're building up the temple. Are we willing to do the secret things? Or do we want to be the gold? The gold can't be where it's at unless the wood and the stone are behind it to hold it up. Another thing is the way that God deals with us. When you look at somebody who has just an incredible life with Christ and they are grounded and the Lord's using them mightily, it's so easy to look at the appearance and go, wow, you know, that's just incredible. But we don't necessarily see the time that that individual spent in the quarry with the Lord, where the Holy Spirit wields the hammer and the chisel and breaking off those pieces that don't look like Christ so that we can be conformed into the image of Christ. We need to be willing to go to the quarry and be in the quarry so that God can break us and shape us and mold us and bring us to that place where we're that living stone that he can say, okay, now you're, you're all right, you're right where I need you to be. All right, I'm going to stick you right in your place in the body. But we need to be willing to go to the quarry and to stay in the quarry. And it's painful sometimes, a lot of times. But that's where we're fashioned into a usable, beautiful piece that God can put right into the right place. And then, of course, it's how God deals with the body. I mentioned earlier about there's a tendency for superficiality in the church. Superficial Christianity. And with this passage that we're looking at, Spurgeon made the comment of how the church so often is a mile wide and an inch deep. We're all about appearances. We're all about superficiality. But God is about a foundation that is strong and deep and firm that he can build upon. But that means being in the quarry. That means the hammer and the chisel, the saw and the axe. But the church as a whole, I think, at least the Western church, doesn't necessarily want to go there. We want, we're very commercialized, very um, self-centered type of church. What's in it for me? Again, I remember, you know, my pastor talking about how people will come and say, hey, what can your church give me? What can your church do for me? And Robert's response would be, you know, well, let's, let's think about this. What can you offer the church? You know, what, what are you bringing to this family? And that's not the mindset that we have in the American church so often. Spurgeon said this, 20,000 people all merely professing faith 
but having no energetic life, may not have grace enough among them to make 20 solid believers. Wow. When push comes to shove and trials and tribulations come, that's where the real believers will stand out. But it takes a foundation. It takes the hammer and the chisel and the quarries as God builds us into a temple for his glory. And then it goes on, chapter 7, Solomon starts building his palace and it talks about the temple furnishings and all. And then in chapter 8, the ark is brought into the temple. Okay? And verse 1 says, Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is in Zion. So if you're looking at Mount Moriah, okay, Mount Moriah is set up in such a way, you know, it's, it's, a, it's actually a kind of a range, all right? And Mount Moriah was the place where um, Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, okay? Mount Moriah was the place where Abraham prophetically said the Lord will provide for himself a sacrifice, speaking of Jesus, okay? So Mount Moriah was a special place. And so the city of David, if you're looking at, if, if you look it up, uh, you know, online or whatever, the city of David is actually below the Temple Mount. All right. And so they brought the ark up out of the city of David into the temple, uh, Temple Mount area where the temple was. And when they did that, it says in verse nine, there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb. Nobody knows what happened to the, the bowl of manna or uh, Aaron's, Aaron's uh, staff that would have been put in there before. Um, my thought is when the Philistines took it, maybe they took that stuff out. I, I don't know. I'm sure they didn't want to read the, the Ten Commandments, you know. <laughs> so maybe they left that out and just like get the manna and the, and the stick. But verse 10, it says, When the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, the Shekinah. And it's like, apparently it's like a cloud that kind of had a glow to it, but it's what we have in the book of Luke at the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, James, John, and Jesus are enveloped in the cloud. That's the Shekinah. And God speaks and he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him, you know? So the glory and the presence of God is thick and heavy, not in a bad way, but just that presence, you know, where it's just like, wow, you're, you're just overwhelmed with the presence of God. I would love that, you know, just to where you're in that time with the Lord and you're in prayer or something or in worship and the spirit of the Lord just moves and boom, you can just feel his presence, you know. It's just, that'd be so awesome. But 
the ark is brought in, the Lord's presence is there filling the house. And then it comes to the prayer of dedication down in verse 22. It says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. Now, in First Chronicles, it tells us that this is big uh, bronze uh, platform and he actually gets on his knees and lifts his hands up. Bronze is the medal of judgment. He's on his knees, which is a position of surrender and submission. His hands are raised, honoring and glorifying the Lord. And he is calling out to God in humility and dependency upon God the Father. And he says in verse 23, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven, above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Covenant. There's no God like you. There are a lot of gods in this world, right? Gods can be finances. Gods can be cars. Gods can be possessions. Gods can be uh, religious gods or whatever, but they're not the real deal. And no God but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a God who makes covenant with the people who follow him. Marriage is a covenant. God is a covenant God, a real person who intimately connects with the people who seek him and long for him and want to connect with him. He is committed to Israel, and that's the wild thing. You know, you look at how Israel was constantly just up and down, up and down, up and down in their, their uh, relationship with the Lord. Despite their up and down relationship, God always remained steadfast. He never, ever abandoned them. Now, he let them be disciplined, and we'll see that in a little bit. But he never abandoned them. He was committed to them. And what I want us to look at here is a structure, okay? Not a structure building-wise, but a structure of how worship is supposed to happen. So we have the physical structure, now we have the worship structure. And it says in verse 27, Solomon says, "'Will God indeed dwell on the earth? "'Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. "'How much less this house that I have built Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, you may remember, God said he would have a permanent place of worship, okay? And the reason why I bring this out is there's always been this mindset, but I think it's growing. And you may have heard it where people say, you know what? God is everywhere. Solomon just said it. You know, God knows. I mean, Solomon knows God is not confined to a building. The heavens and the earth can't contain him. But people will say, God is everywhere. 
I don't need to go to church to have a relationship with God. I can just worship when I go out on a hike. I can go worship when I break the canoe out and just go out on the lake. I can worship God in my own home. And we live in a time where it is very easy for, the, for people to isolate themselves from the body of Christ because we have, we have sermons on, on the internet. We have sermons on radio. We have sermons on TV. We've got a, such a huge amount of access to teaching and preaching in the word of God. It's unprecedented what we have access to. And I'm not saying that those things are bad. Praise God that we have them because the word of God is going out to people through those venues. But when we have that mindset of, I don't need to go to church, it's like a stone going, I don't need to be in the wall. Yeah, you do. It's like a part of the body, because we're the body of Christ, saying, I don't need the rest of the body. Paul talks about that, right? You know, what if the eye says to the ear, I have no need of you? Well, that's kind of dumb, right? You can't take a part of your body and separate it and just say, okay, you're self-sufficient. It's going to die. And that's what happens when we are not connected to the body of Christ. I don't know of anybody who has separated themselves from the body, okay, from fellowship with believers who have flourished in the relationship with the Lord. More often than not, you watch them just digress and go further and further downhill. We have to be connected. Well, people say, I don't like organized church. I don't like organized religion. Well, God is a God of organization. God is a God of order. And when we don't have that order, we have what we see in the book of Judges, people doing what was right in their own eyes. And back in Deuteronomy 12, God tells them there's going to be a specific place so that you're not going out to all the different places and worshiping me the way you want to. But people come back and go, yeah, but there's so much corruption and there's so much hypocrisy and I've been hurt by the church and I've been hurt by Christians. And you know what? I hear that and I go, I totally get it. I used to not understand why people hated church. And I would hear people say, I'm okay with Jesus. I love Jesus. I hate church. I read where Gandhi said, he was asked what he thought of, of Christianity. And Gandhi's response was, your Christ, I like. It's his followers that I don't like. And when I read that, I'm like, wow, what a scathing judgment. But then I found myself in a place where I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to be around Christians. And I began to understand, you know, wow, okay, rather than looking at these people and going, man, how can you not want to go to church? Going, okay, I get it now. And there's that, fear sometimes because you don't want to be hurt again. You don't want to be let down. And so there's this 
tendency to want to pull away. We can't do that. We can't do that. God has said, I want you together. We're a body. We're a temple to the Lord. And Peter talks about how we're knit together, we're fused together by the gifts that each one of us supplies. You have things I need. I cannot stand alone in my walk with Christ. I can't do it. See, the Bible says we're priests in the house of the Lord. And the ministry of a priest is two-way. It's representing man to God and God to man. We're supposed to go to the Lord on behalf of one another, serving each other in prayer and bringing, being, you know, that, that person that's going to God on behalf of each other. But we're also God's hands and feet and tools to minister to one another. I need you. We need each other. And the Lord wants to work through his, his people to build up his temple, to build up his body for his glory and for the good of others. And then notice that there's the issue of prayer, okay? Prayer is absolutely essential. Solomon's talking about when we come together and we pray and we seek your face, please hear us. Going on to verse 20, 33, look at what we have here. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave their fathers. Does that mean that they're going to be kicked out of the land? Yeah, we'll see that in a minute. Verse 35, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned. Verse 37, if there's famine in the land, if there's pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, and stretching out his hands toward this place, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each one whose heart you know, according to all his ways, for you only know the hearts of the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Repentance is a part of prayer. In verse 48, it talks about if they sin against you, and then Solomon says, for there's no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave their fathers, the city that you have chosen in the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God specifically says 
that a time would come when they would sin and be taken out of the land that God had given him. But if they would pray and seek him and repent, he would bring them back. And now Solomon is praying that same thing. It's like, okay, if this happens and you take us out, this is the Babylonian captivity, then when we repent, bring us back. The church needs to understand, and we forget this, I think, that judgment from God is on us as well. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, Peter says, judgment begins with the house of God. And just because we're Christians doesn't mean we're above the discipline of the Lord. We're told in the scriptures that whom the Lord loves, he reproves, right? A loving father disciplines the ones he loves to help get them back on the right track. It's not comfortable, but that's going back to the quarry. That's going back to the hammer and the chisel to knock off those things so that we can be more like Christ and get back on the right path. The world looks at the church and there is a lot of judgment from the world toward the church. And I think correctly so. The church knows how Christians should be living. And when they don't see that, it's an affront to the Lord. And I've heard people say, if that's Christianity, if that's what your God's like, I don't want any part of him. And that's a hard thing to hear. But we really have, we're, we're the children of God. We're princes and princesses of the Most High King. We are royal blood. It makes me think, you know, uh, King Charles was just coronated, right? This yesterday. And boy, everybody had to, you know, you have to look right. You have to act right. And there was all this drama and stuff because people aren't acting right. And there's jealousies and all this garbage and stuff. And, you know, it's like, wow, well, that's, that's not very royal in the way you're acting or whatever, you know, that's, that's kind of lame, you know. And for us as believers, how, how do we look as children of the king? You know, how are we acting toward our siblings in the body of Christ, the family of God? You know, are we hurting each other, lying to each other, deceiving, coveting, you know, tearing each other down, judging each other, condemning each other? The world looks at that and goes, way to go, royal family. No. We have a standard to live by as children of the king. And the Holy Spirit will help us to do that. But we have to be willing. And when the church, God is not above. He says, I will, in, in chapter 9, verse 8, he says, This house will become a heap of ruins Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold of other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, God has brought all this disaster on them. 
God, I don't want to say this wrong, he's not concerned about his reputation, okay? It's not like, man, boy, if I discipline my kids for doing things they shouldn't do, man, what will the world think? You know, we know right here, it's like, what's, what happened here? Well, you know what? They disobeyed the Lord and God disciplined them. Oh, okay. You know, God takes it seriously the way his body is supposed to live. And we as Christians have a standard that we're supposed to live by, and it's the standard of Christ. What's really cool, and I was thinking about this last week and it just hit me, was in Galatians chapter 5, when it's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, there's the passage that says, if we live by the Spirit, we ought to, or we are to walk by the Spirit. And for me growing up, okay, I learned that King James, which is if we walk in the Spirit, we live in the Spirit. Or live in the Spirit, we walk in the Spirit, okay? And it's like, okay, live in the Spirit, that means we live in our relationship with Christ. That's how we live our lives. How do we walk in the Spirit? What's, what's that mean? The words there is actually by, okay? So if we live by the Holy Spirit, we are made spiritually alive, born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, therefore walk by the Holy Spirit. The Greek is you walk in the power and the ability that the Holy Spirit provides you. And for me, that was like revolutionary. And this was last week, okay? And I'm going, I get it. I can't do this on my own. But if I call it, and it made me think of last week's teaching where Solomon's going, Lord, help me. I need you. Help me. And it's like, okay, you want me to walk like my Savior, and you're there to help me. You're my helper. I get it. And that was such a freeing thing to be able to go, okay, I'm just, I'm with you. Take me where you want me to go. I want to finish with this. Going back to chapter 8, verse 41. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. So they're hearing of all the things that God's doing on behalf of his people. When he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know what this house may know that this house which I have built is called by your name you remember when Jesus went into the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and all of that and he says my house shall be called a house of prayer but you've made it a den of thieves okay so we see here prayer is central to the house of the lord do we see prayer happening within the house of the lord i don't think very much you'll see people go to potlucks barbecues 
softball games, basketball games, concerts, you know, but you say, hey, we're going to have a prayer meeting. Uh, a few will show up. We're not going, oh yeah, let's band together and we're going to pray and seek the Lord together. Prayer is critical. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Prayer should be everywhere when we enter the house of the Lord and amongst the body of Christ. And as God moves within the body, the world sees what God is doing. And that's what was happening here. Solomon's praying and saying, God, when they see what you're doing and they come, let them look to you and answer their prayers. And they go, this is the true God. This is the real God. And they fear and respect you as Israel does. And so when Jesus went into the temple, he wasn't in the temple. There was the outer court of the temple. It was called the court of the Gentiles. And if you were not a Jew, you could not go into the inner court to worship. You had to be in the court of the Gentiles. And it was that court that the money changers were taking advantage of the people and ripping people off and just totally misrepresenting God. And so you get these people who not only Jew, but Gentile also who is going in and they're looking to worship God and seek God. And as soon as they step into the house of God, they've got people trying to fleece them, take advantage of them, misrepresenting God. And Jesus was like, we're not having that. The body of Christ, and I'm talking about the church, not building, but the church, you and me, universally, corporately. When the world looks at us, they should be able to see God working in our lives. And by seeing what God is doing, go, I want to know more. I want a part of that. And remember, we are temples. We are priests. And so the world will look to Jesus through us. Okay? I'm not saying we save people. Don't get me wrong. But we are a connecting point between the heavenly and the earthly. We are God's representatives on this earth. And so we need to be walking with him. We need to let the Lord take us to the quarry and shape us and mold us into the image of Christ. So, because remember, he's the cornerstone. And to fit well with the cornerstone means we have to be shaped to fit the cornerstone. And the building will grow from there. Let us live for Christ. Let us have the heart of God. Let us not be content with superficial relationships. There used to be a song back, back in the, the late 90s, and it was like, it was called Better Off as Friends. And it was a song where you've got this person and they're like, you know, you're wanting to buy a ring. I'm just kind of, just wanting to do casual dating here, Jesus, okay? You're wanting to talk lifelong. It's like, I'm, I'm just kind of good with floating here. You know, you want marriage. I just want to date you. I want a casual relationship. And so often, I think many Christians just are content with this casual relationship. 
they enter into a marriage maybe, but they're not wanting to really cultivate and go deeper with the beloved Son of God. They're just content to be saved, content to go to heaven, but they don't want to go deep into intimacy with the beloved, you know?